Brothers and sisters, happy Sunday. Let us pray. Holy and merciful God, God most gracious, most powerful, and most wise, let us behold you transfigured once again, Lord. Let us reflect your light into the world. Amen. We heard a reading from Peter's second letter, the second letter of Peter. Uh, There's a lot of debate around who actually wrote the letters from Peter. It's very unlikely that they were written by Peter. That's not a controversial thing to say, because in the book of Acts, it says pretty plainly, Peter didn't know how to write. So it's unlikely that he learned later on in life how to write a letter, let alone a a letter written in Greek. Uh, He spoke Aramaic. The letter was clearly written in Greek. It was likely that it was a collection of Peter's memories, thoughts, teachings, and sayings. Maybe written by Silvanus, one of Peter's own students. We don't know. But we have this figure of Peter with whom we can attach ourselves. The great American preacher Fred Craddock says that we overhear the Gospels when we stand beside the disciples and listen with them to Jesus and experience the things that they experienced. And Peter is a fascinating figure because he is often filled with anxiety. He often gets things wrong, and yet Jesus chooses him, refers to him as Caiaphas, gives him the nickname of the rock upon this rock. He says, Peter, you are like a rock. Interestingly, scholarship tells us today that there's another figure who might have been given a nickname like that by Jesus, uh, and that's Mary Magdalene. Uh, We are told oftentimes that she's named Mary Magdalene because she comes from the village of Magdala, uh, even though the Bible says, the Bible refers to as Mary called the Magdalene. There was no village of Magdala at the time of Jesus. Uh, Magdalene is simply a word that means uh, the tower, the tower in Aramaic. So likely Peter was the rock and Mary was the tower. And we have a gospel of Mary. We have other documents that relate to her. But her teachings, sadly, uh, have often been suppressed by the church for uh, reasons that are quite silly, having to do with her gender. But we have this story of Peter in Luke, this transfiguration. This story has fascinated clergy throughout history. One of my favorite members of the clergy, a man named Father John Deere, Uh, Yes, like the tractor company, spelled differently. A Jesuit priest uh, who's been uh, arrested over a hundred times because he can't abide silliness and he protests outside of nuclear missile silos and things like that. He wrote a book called The Transfiguration. He wrote that book while he was in prison. And in it, he makes the point that the important thing that we take from this story is that we don't get to stay on the mountain. Would that it would be enough that we would encounter God and through some cheap grace could spend the rest of our life sitting on the mountain. But instead, we have to go down, off the mountain, into Jerusalem. And when I preach this transfiguration story, I almost always borrow from Father John Deere's description of Peter. When Father Deere preaches about this, he gets very active. He envisions Peter as somebody who's manic, who has this incredible vision. He sees Moses and Elijah. And it's the festival of booths. 
So let's build three shelters up here on the mountain, Lord. I'll get some sticks together and we'll get some branches and we'll make a booth. We'll celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacle with with Moses and Elijah and everything. And he's running around and, and then God, the creator, says... Cut that stuff out. (laughs) Stop it. Stop running around. This is Jesus. Listen to him. I've often felt that way in my life. But this week as I was reading this story, I was attracted to this line where it says that the the, the, uh, disciples, that Peter and his companion were weighed down with sleep. But they'd stayed awake and they saw his glory. So... Maybe Peter's not so manic. Maybe Peter's tired. He's worn out. Maybe he's exhausted. That's what the story says. Peter says, let's just take a nap. I'll build a tent for you and one for these guys. Let's get some sleep. (laughs) And God says, no, you have something else that you need to do. Today in America, we are a very anxious people. We are given a lot of answers to where our anxieties come from. Most of them are inaccurate, as best as I can tell. We take a lot of medicine. Americans are the most medicated people on the planet. 70% of Americans take at least one prescribed medication every day. 70%. That's up from 60% 10 years ago, up from 50% 10 years before that. I'm not an exception. Due to a lot of circumstances, most of which that are a matter of genetics and outside of my own control, but a few of which that are within my control, every morning I take six medications and two before bed. I am a part of that statistic. And many of these medications have to do with our feelings about the world. Some of us are anxious. Some of us are depressed. Anxiety and depression together is a living hell. And uh, about 60 years ago, there was what's called the biological revolution in psychology. And words like dopamine and serotonin and norepinephrine entered the vocabulary of your average American. And then we were told by some very smart people, uh, the, your problems are not a product of your environment, they're simply a matter of your brain chemistry. And we found some pills that you can take that'll mess with your brain chemistry. And a great number of Americans were prescribed uh, SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Okay, there's a chemistry lesson in church. But all of that was a way of pushing this source of our anxiety to the side. We, live, we know, I mean, it's a statistical reality that we live in a broken society. If you didn't know, and I told you for the first time, that though Americans make up 4% of the global population, we incarcerate 25% of the prisoners on the planet Earth, you might think, well, that doesn't sound like a place I want to visit. Because that's insane. It's insane that there are three million Americans in, incarcerated in this country. Now, we've gotten ourselves into this situation for a lot of different reasons. 
but it doesn't change the facts on the ground, that might cause you to feel kind of anxious. It causes me to have a great deal of anxiety. The other problem is that we have created for ourselves a myth of meritocracy. We're told from a very young age, and I think for good reasons, I'm not trying to blame our parents, but we're told that when you grow up, you can be anything that you want. I mean, I was told that. A lot of us were told that. We're also told oftentimes by our teachers, well-meaning as they were, that if you work hard and get up early, you're going you're gonna to get rich in America. Millions of people come to America every day based on this idea. This is the idea of meritocracy, the idea that hard work or at least intelligence or whatever, that that's going to make you uh, uh, some sort of titan of industry, right? I think it'd be better if they just taught us that you could be comfortable, perhaps, if you worked hard. But now people take pills in order to work harder. You, I understand from my friends who live in California that in, in Silicon Valley, in the tech industries, people take drugs every single morning so that they don't have to sleep, so that they can amp their brains up and, and, and work harder. I'm sure that that creates anxiety and depression. Peter is anxious, perhaps, or tired, and he wants a solution. He wants to do something. And God and Jesus Christ both seem to say to him, your ideas are no good. There's only one thing that you need to do. Listen to him. Listen to Jesus Christ. Unfortunately for a lot of Americans, when they run headlong into the crisis of our civic faith, which is the truth that your economic well-being in life is not determined by your IQ or your grades, but rather your zip code. When they run into that reality, they look, they look for a scapegoat. They look to blame somebody. It's not their fault. They did everything right. But the world's falling apart around them, and so somebody has to be to blame. A lot of times they'll choose the weakest members of their community as the scapegoat to blame for all of their problems. Sometimes they'll choose the most powerful. I think that that's better. <laughs> I, think you're, I think politicians sign up to get yelled at uh, when they run for election. So it's okay if you get angry at politicians. Jesus got angry at politicians. But I think that some Americans got so angry at politicians about the condition of things that in 2016 they chose to burn everything down. They did everything that they could to elect somebody who wasn't a politician. I can sympathize with that, that idea. But it's still scapegoating. Likewise, there's another group of Americans who choose instead to follow the words of the great Timothy Leary. Said in the 60s, right? Something like, uh, turn on, tune in, and drop out. There was a movement in the late 60s and early 70s to exempt ourselves from the problems of the world. Maybe if you take the right pill, you can stop worrying about everything that's going on. And I'm worried because we're shifting now from the age of the antidepressant into the age of psychedelics. Psychedelic medications are being prescribed now in the US legally for the first time ever. And my fear is that this is another form of escapism. Escapism from a society that tries to turn a human being into a commodity by any means necessary. 
And why not? The great economist Mark Fisher wrote that it's easier for Americans to imagine the end of the world than it is for Americans to imagine the end of capitalism. So Americans are looking for an escape. Like Peter, they're trying to figure out what to do on that mountaintop. They're trying to figure out what combination of behaviors, medications, activities might soothe their anxiety or relieve them of their depression. I think that what God is trying to teach us here is not so much that we ought not be anxious, but perhaps we should be anxious about the right stuff. The anxiety that we experience, most of us, as we get older, is almost always focused on material conditions of our life that we don't have any control over. Or it's relationships. Or perhaps the failure of expectations. Again, things that we can exercise very little control over. But there is only one thing that is truly necessary. It is to listen to him. Follow him down off the mountain. Jesus has anxiety. It's depicted several times in the Gospels, not just prior to his arrest, his crucifixion. He's anxious when his beloved, when Lazarus is in the tomb. He's anxious for the people of Jerusalem. He says he wishes he could gather them to him like a mother gathers her chicks. Well, he's anxious. But he's anxious about things that are true rather than these illusions that seem to plague us in our society. Christianity is not a religion of escapism into some other world. It's really sad, in fact, that that's what we've allowed it to develop into, a religion about going to heaven when you die. Religion is, well, as Niebuhr says, a good thing for good people and a bad thing for bad people. But Christianity is supposed to be a religion that's about telling the truth. And telling the truth even when the whole world wants you to shut up or threatens to kill you for telling the truth. That's what following Jesus means. And so as your pastor, it's not that I wouldn't wave a magic wand and remove all of the stress and anxiety from your life. I'd want nothing more than that. But if you're going to be anxious, I at least want you to be anxious about the right things. So many of the problems that are carried through the door of my office, the course of the week, that I see out in the world, these anxieties, first of all, they're based on predictions about the future that may, or may not be accurate. And a lot of the times, they will disappear on their own over the course of time. But there are real problems out there, and there are bad people out there who are seeking to make their lives easier at the expense of others. That anxiety is real, and it's okay to address it, I think. We live in a 
society that wants us to be productive by the, by the terms of that society until the very end of our lives. When what is needed, rather, is to be still and listen to God. I, uh, I know that in my life I'm on that mountaintop. I'm scrambling to figure out the right thing to do. And I wish that a cloud would overtake me, make me be silent and listen to Jesus Christ. But if I can't have that, then I know that I at least can open my Bible and listen to him and do what he says. There is going to be a day in your life and in mine when there will be an apocalypse, an unveiling, a day after which we will have no more anxiety because the time for that has passed. That day, I want to be present and I want to be restful, knowing that I have spent my life's little day anxious about the things that Jesus would have me be anxious about and unconcerned over everything else. And so I think that all we can do, like Peter, be quiet and listen to him. And then, yes, follow him down off of the mountain, out into Jerusalem, and do the thing that's the hard part. Tell the truth. To tell the truth. Brothers and sisters, this week I'm going to be anxious, but I'm also going to tell the truth. And I think that if that is all I can do, it'll be sufficient for my discipleship and the needs thereon. Amen. Amen.